Hello and welcome to the Psych Summaries podcast. My name is Hannah and I will be having conversations with clinicians, academics and experts that have applications to the field of psychology and mental health. They have many years of experience, meaning they are trusted voices in niche subjects. But I invite you to consume the content with a critical perspective, since a one-size-fits-all approach rarely applies to mental health. I hope you learn something and enjoy listening. Today I am speaking to the lovely Jacinta Brinsley, otherwise known as the Yogi Doc, who is studying her PhD in clinical exercise physiology with a focus on the relationship between yoga and mental health. We explore the current research base, its limitations and touch on future directions of this work. I am so passionate about the idea that finding the right movement to enjoy is key to sustainably engaging in movement, which is so important for our body, our minds and our brains. So I'm so excited to speak to you today, Jacinta. Could we start with an introduction to yourself for our listeners, please? So my name is Jacinta Brinsley. I am an exercise physiologist and I'm currently completing my PhD, which is looking at yoga and mental illness. I had some pretty strong opinions about me not enjoying yoga when I was younger. So I think in high school, we you know had to do a class on school camp. And I remember it just being super weird and like everyone was giggling. And so obviously just had like a lot of preconceived ideas about, you know, all yoga must just be like that weird. So I was a runner during school, I ended up trying to do sprinting ended up with injuries, was on holiday in Byron Bay with a friend, ended up seeing this random masseuse who was talking about, you know, fascial trains and slings and all this like cool stuff that I was learning at uni. And he was like, you should really try yin yoga. And I know some people in Adelaide who run an amazing studio. You should definitely go there. And I was like, oh, look, yoga's just not for me. But, you know, thanks for the lovely recommendation. Anyway, my curiosity got the better of me and I actually did go to this yoga studio and had a chat to the teacher after class and it was honestly just the most amazing thing ever. I have had my own history with my mental health and depression and anxiety and teetering on that edge of like chronic pain and how it wears away at your resilience. So going to this yoga class just really changed the way I felt in my body and really changed the way I felt like in my mind. And it was obviously such a noticeable thing, but I signed up and I went back and I've literally, you know, done yoga most days of the week for the last six years. Um, And I was just starting out as a clinician at the time and wanted to, you know, see what was available in, in the evidence in terms of me prescribing yoga to the people that were coming to me for their mental and physical health and there just wasn't a whole lot of guidance I mean my special interest was always around mental health populations particularly depression and anxiety probably because I kind of related to it a bit and yeah just just this lack of direction in the literature and so you know obviously ended up asking some questions talking to some people and then ended up doing a PhD in it um, and have loved every minute of it really that's so cool. I really love it when there's a real personal story behind it because it just means that there's like true motivation. And just picking up on that point about yin yoga. So obviously there's lots of different types. How mm-hmm. do we define yoga in 
the literature is it accounting for all of these different types and taking into account the meditative forms or is it just purely a physical engaging act of exercise look honestly this is such a great question and this is something that we faced really early on in my PhD to be honest, like in the literature, yoga just isn't defined. The term yoga actually refers to a whole bunch of lineages. So, you know, we say yoga and we're actually referring to Ashtanga yoga or Hatha yoga or Kundalini or Iyengar yoga. But then also the term yoga can refer to like specific practices that would fall underneath the banner of yoga. So, you know, it might be asana, it might be pranayama and so asana is just movement postures and pranayama is just breathing techniques you know it might include mindfulness meditation all those sorts of things and so the word yoga actually gets thrown around a lot in the literature but like what are you referring to like what am I trying to replicate in clinical practice so I think that's probably something that we that we need to work on in the field of yoga particularly for translation of this research to to actually you know help people but I think if we're defining yoga more broadly the term itself like the actual word means to yoke or to unite so it's about you know uniting body and mind and you know self to transcended self depending how traditional you want to go with your definition versus how modern you want to be if we're sticking in the modern western version of yoga that we've kind of created and that what most people would come into contact with if they were to go to a typical studio technically we would define that as modern postural yoga you know most of the class is predominantly movement based there might be you know a little bit of breath technique to start there might be some shavasana or some you know conscious rest at the end of the class but you know most of the time you're moving your body also depends if you ask someone from like a psychology background versus someone from an exercise science background. So most of the yoga literature really does come from a psychology realm and to come at it from an exercise science perspective, this is probably part of the one of the things we've tried to address because we've noticed you know, in a lot of the systematic reviews of exercise when they define exercise, you know, they often exclude yoga, even though yoga does include exercise. So I don't know. It depends, depends how like layered you want to get with your definitions. It does illustrate, though, the trouble with looking at the literature, doesn't it? Because, you know, how conclusive is it when we don't really have a pure definition of what it means? You know, if you do a power yoga, anyone that's done that knows that that is a workout. However, if you do a yin yoga, it is much more meditative. So I can see kind of where the issues come. And something I also wanted to ask you about was, you know, you mentioned that uniting of body and mind. And I wondered as well whether we are studying it as purely an individualistic practice or something that people do as a group. Because again, we know that community and being around people can be really, really protective for our health. Do we know actually what the active things that we're measuring are when we're looking at yoga? Or is it just, you know, kind of self-report questionnaires? How did you feel before and how did you feel after? Are we taking into account the community aspect of it? Look, great question. In terms of like how we're measuring what yoga is doing to people is, you know, 
probably the most common is these sorts of self-report measures just because from a you know practical perspective they're quite easy to administer but we've got some MRI studies we've also got some studies that are taking into account physiological changes that are occurring I think the community thing's a really interesting aspect though it's something that definitely needs to be considered like in psychology it's very well known around the therapist effect and how someone's outcomes are largely you know determined by how well they connect with the therapist and so if someone's going to yoga and they're getting a therapeutic effect like of course we're going to have to consider that part of that's going to come down to how well they connect with the teacher and the, the teacher's style of teaching it's quite hard to control for that in a trial unless we take out all these components so if we you know do it one-on-one -on -one instead of in a in a group and maybe record the the session or deliver it via audio so that they're not getting any personal interaction but then you know that's getting very sciencey and trying to boil something down to very black and white and it's not at all pragmatic as to what the experience of yoga is if you're going out in the community or even in a clinical setting so I mean part and parcel is like you know we're inferring association or causation whenever we do studies and whenever we do science but you know some sometimes you've just got to say like it all it all goes in there together and there's obviously um many things at play and do we know for someone who either does it or wants to start how much yoga every single week would be considered helpful to be protective of our mental health and is there a specific form that has been studied with the best outcomes or as you say is it just kind of this mix of any <laughs> yoga it's so hard to give conclusive answers that are like ob like absolutes because as much as science wants to come across as absolute like it just really isn't so I think for part one, I'm going to refer back to the exercise science literature. And so this is going to be where we've got the most ridiculously high quality research and, and lots of it now, like huge cohort studies, prospective meta-analyses, like all sorts. So I would look back to that in terms of protective mental health benefits. There was a study published only like a year or two ago saying that 60 minutes a week had a 17% incident reducing ability for depression for physical activity or exercise there's been some research that showed as little as 10 minutes of physical activity can improve people's mood and mental health so I mean we did do a meta-analysis that was published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine and we pulled data from a transdiagnostic population so people with schizophrenia PTSD alcohol use disorder depression anxiety whole range of disorders but we pulled depressive symptoms because that's pretty common amongst any diagnostic criteria. And we found that the only thing that really contributed to the reduction in depressive symptoms was how many times per week that that person engaged in yoga. So it didn't matter if it was, you know, a 20 minute session or a 90 minute session that they were doing. It just mattered how frequently they were. And, you know, that kind of probably does make sense in the sense that if you take your blood pressure medication once a week, your blood pressure is probably not going to go down too much. But if you take that every day, you're probably going to see a change. So I think it's that dose response uh, relationship that your body you know, needs a frequent dose as opposed to you know, a big dose and then it dies down. So to clarify, actually, it's better to do potentially 10 minutes every day of that yoga practice than it is just to do one session a week. I think it is really just like something is better than nothing. The more often you can do that thing the better um 
your body just adapts like it's just a basic like physiological process like for adaptation to occur we need to apply a frequent stimulus and I would just say that once a week really probably doesn't feel frequent to your physiology even though via our time structure it, it comes around so quickly that's really really interesting because I think we all can spend so long can't we just dreading or making ourselves book that one session a week but it's potentially not even enough that's why people say if you walk every day those populations can be so healthy because they're engaging in it consistently I'd read about gamma in the brain and I was wondering if you could talk about MRIs whether you could tell us about what the neuroscience is saying in relation to engaging in yoga there has been an amazing study done out of Boston University. So Chris Streeter and his colleagues, so they looked at GABA. And so GABA is a neurotransmitter in the brain. It's typically an inhibitory transmitter. And so it's related to mood, anxiety, and sleep. And there's significant increased association with yoga and GABA. So basically they did this really cool study. They did a pilot and then they did a big study. And their big study was 12 weeks. And so their participants got randomized into like an intervention group. And then they had an active control, which was actually metabolically matched for the Iyengar group because I remember being like that's amazing and that's something that the yoga research sort of gets a little bit of critiquing on is that the controls aren't matched super well so of course we're going to see an effect so I remember that's why this study was actually so amazing so basically metabolically both groups are doing the same thing but both groups have their brain scanned at the start and at the end of week 12 and then so they have this second MRI scan and then they go and do like their final session and then they have a scan immediately afterward. So we've got this chronic 12 week from scan one to scan two and then from scan two to scan three, we almost get like an acute change, like what happened in the brain in just one session. And so the acute measurement showed that after only one 30 minute session, GABA levels increased by about 27%. The important thing to probably face that with is that this is the first study to really show that a behavioral intervention so something like yoga like doing something is actually associated with a positive correlation between changes in GABA and also they showed improvements in mood and anxiety while you can't infer or say that you know this causes this what we say is that you know GABA has a possible role in mediating the beneficial effects of yoga on mood and anxiety and that actually opens up you know a whole other area for exciting study because basically we can say like this is really promising let's do more research and I think GABA provides that more mechanistic level a little bit deeper because we're now starting to look at specific things within the body as opposed to like you said like these self-report measures of you know I feel better and my anxiety levels are down so it's really exciting. And do we see that similar trend in other forms of exercise, maybe walking, for example? Is it kind of the equivalent to walking or do we know if it's more superior or we're not quite there yet? I don't know about specifically GABA on this one, but I know that a lot of the neurobiological benefits that we do see from yoga are very, very, very similar to the results that we see from particularly aerobic studies of exercise, which I think there's this layer of fascination there because 
yoga isn't typically aerobic so it's got to be a different mechanism at play than than walking or running or jogging or swimming yeah I wonder if it's almost the harnessing of the the breath or something because you know you do that accidentally when you're exercising you're you are having to maintain and, and manage it but with yoga you're doing it a little bit more consciously but I mean that will be really really interesting to see what kind of develops over time are there any kind of big specific studies I know you mentioned Brendan Stubbs but ones that have actually found causal findings or is everything just correlational yeah so good question I think theoretically if we're getting like super nit gritty with it all like it's it's impossible to ever kind of prove causation with these sorts of things like even if we're doing like the best blinded you know controlled studies but what we do see is statistically significant results when we compare yoga to control groups and even to active control groups so like I was saying before you know typically that's been a point of critique for the yoga field is that we're using these passive control groups and then you know, recently there's been more active control groups such as psychotherapy and exercise. And so I think what we need to do is almost like zoom out a little bit and and just see whether the results that we're seeing from these sorts of well done, methodologically robust studies, are they consistent? Are some finding positive findings and others are finding, you know, no findings or, you know, and then further than that, like, are there any adverse events and things like that that are reported? What is the safety, not only the efficacy, but the safety of, of these interventions? For example, there's a clarify like reporting guideline that's being released by Dr. Stephanie Moonen and her colleagues, which will improve things like that. So I think in some ways, like the yoga research is just trying to catch up to you know psychology and exercise which has just been I guess in the scientific realm being studied and and having funding as well to be studied for for much longer I think there's a lot of associations and correlations that we do see from big meta-analyses and you know in the in the yoga world there's probably not that many that have been done I mean Holger Kramer has published a buttload of systematic reviews and meta-analyses his name pops up on everything so you know it's amazing to see he's just he's covered you know everything and summarized everything so he's a great point of call but even then they don't include many RCTs particularly if you look at like the risk of bias part how good are the interventions that are included in these reviews and I think that's possibly why I almost divert to the exercise literature a little bit more is just because it kind of you know has a step up on the yoga research in that instance but I think we're definitely catching up we're definitely improving the the rigor to these studies and so it it won't be long until you know there'll be more MRI studies and we'll have a better idea around the causation behind the effects that we're seeing that at this point in time we really can only infer you know correlation correlationally generally speaking if you engage in that you are able to reduce symptoms or is this actually thought to treat can it be like an independent therapy and still be effective or is it really only effective when in combination with like medication or psychotherapy and and to be honest um like some research includes participants who are on a stable psychiatric medication some research includes people who aren't on any medication i think typically what we see is studies that have included 
um, like a diagnostic cutoff. So the participants have needed to meet diagnostic criteria. I think typically the, the inclusion caveat is that, you know, if you're on a stable medication, you, you can participate. Typically, if there's like a strict no medication allowed, most of the time what we would see is they would be subclinical but high threshold in terms of symptom. So we're not saying that like, you know, these people meet a disorder level, but, you know, there are people that are experiencing, you know, high symptoms of depression, anxiety and stress. So probably a little bit of a gray area there. And I would say really comes down to like the individual at the end of the day, it's about what's going to suit that person in front of you. And everyone has different reasons for symptom onset and different psychosocial factors at play and exercise and mindfulness are really only one tiny part of holistic treatment and medication is so suitable for people depending on what their circumstances are and you know yoga's again like I think I've approached it from the point of just trying to create more evidence-based exercise options for people being in a gym or you know riding a bike or running these aren't the only types of exercise that we can offer you as therapeutic treatment you know why can't we have yoga and pilates and all these other alternative forms for people so that you know, just like if your first SSRI medication doesn't work, your doctor puts you on a different one. And so, you know, why not try the same thing with exercise? Yeah. And people enjoy different activities. So like you say, why would it not be inclusive if it meets the definition of an exercise? I, I don't know what that is, but engaging muscles and raising your heart rate, etc. then why, why can't it be included? And another thing, which I don't know if you'll be able to answer this, I'm I thought about the role of inflammation in mental illness or the onset of mental illness. And I wondered if there's any literature around engaging in, you may be able to answer this bit more broadly, i.e. just exercise and inflammation, but is there anything about the relationship between yoga and inflammation? There are, um, there are some studies and I'm, not sure exactly what measures of inflammation they are using here, but there are some studies that um, do show in their findings that the yoga intervention did reduce inflammation levels. And I think, you know, it kind of makes sense when we take it back to our stress response and our HPA axis. And, you know, particularly, I think what maybe even really s- separates yoga from traditional forms of exercise is the fact that it, it's so highly promotes this concept of self-regulation and so if anyone's familiar with the term like the window of tolerance it's your hyper arousal and then you've got this window where you know you're okay and you're functioning in like a healthy range and so these states also correlate to you know different nervous system activation levels not to make it too sciencey but if we're chronically stressed then we are you know sitting up in our hyper arousal and so we're going to have all this cortisol secreted and that's going to cause inflammation and it's going to change our hormone balances and it's you know going to change our fat storage and you know our mental health is going to deteriorate because our brain is an organ just like the rest of the organs in our body and so you know being able to not only metabolically challenge someone's body with movement but also using the breath to kind of help down regulate someone's nervous system is going to help kind of interrupt that cycle and then also just the practice of someone regulating their 
constant attention and focus and, and being aware of like their thoughts and their automatic processes. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to a yoga class, but sometimes they'll put you in this pose and you sort of twist it up like a pretzel and you're balancing on like your fourth toe. And then they're like, now close your eyes. And what's your, what's your automatic reaction when things get hard? Do you want to, do you want to get angry or do you want to like get out of the pose? Or do you want to leave? And you're sitting there and you're like, Oh my God, every time I'm challenged, I have this reaction. So I think it's just, it almost like holds up a bit of a mirror for people in, in an environment where it's not so confronting because a little bit different than sitting in like a therapist's office and, and you're moving as well. So, you know, you just have an uncomfortable moment and the next thing you're doing something else. So it's that, that balance of distraction and focus, I think that allows people to maybe explore things for themselves. And then that changes their perception of the world and then their stress response and gives them tools to utilize throughout the day. I can really resonate with that I definitely definitely in a yin class I find when you're in a position and you kind of get further and further into that position and you are confronted with frustration and everything but something about coming out of it in the next couple of minutes you kind of feel safe to be there and you're able to acknowledge how you're feeling but it doesn't last also I was wanting to ask is there research into things like PTSD where Again, there is kind of a physical biological response, i.e. maybe it is something like panic attacks or, you know, flashbacks. Is there any research looking at that? But I actually have a gut feeling that PTSD may be where like the yoga, like yoga research actually like really took off. So for anyone who is interested, Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score, like super well-known book. I find his research papers a little bit easier and quicker to read. So he did all this amazing work for yoga in PTSD, you know, and they talk about how they had to change the yoga sequence over time to really suit that population because they found like the longer holds were a little bit, you know, triggering and so there was some adverse effects there and sometimes having the intensity of the class too high. So if we're thinking like a power yoga, you know, that can also just be a bit triggering for people. So there's quite a bit of research focusing on PTSD and yoga. And I think that potentially, you know, that more defined trauma diagnosis is possibly where yoga kind of got pulled in as this augmented treatment. And even like Peter Levine's book, Waking the Tiger, and it talks about how trauma is just really stored in the body. You know, you your mind is, is a function of not only your brain, but also your nervous system, which does live um, in your body and is responsible for your interoception, your proprioception and all your somatic feelings. And so when we feel triggered or stressed or panicked, it really is like a, a body response. You know, our, our mind technically has the ability to dissociate from that. And quite often that's a, a safety strategy that someone will develop as a way to protect themselves. And so yoga and other mind body therapies can be a good tool for keeping people in their body and for actually helping them resolve this trauma and like letting the trauma out so it doesn't keep coming up to their mind to be resolved and so I actually think PTSD is probably the birthplace of yoga being used for mental illness. I think all the PTSD and yoga trials have had positive findings and that's probably what's kicked off a lot of the yoga research. I'm aware of the time so my last question was steering a little bit away from I guess mental health or mental illness and towards normal brain functioning and things like memory, attention, reasoning, learning etc. Do we see that yoga helps increase focus and do we have any longitudinal research in, in that area to to know whether actually engaging in that is 
really protective for our brain. Again, this is probably referring more to MRI studies in terms of like brain structure. So we know there's certain areas of the brain that are kind of responsible for memory and for executive function and emotional regulation and things like that. And so we have seen that there's an increase in gray matter volume in a number of regions. So like frontal, limbic, temporal, occipital and cerebellar regions. And so there's been some good studies and some good reviews on that. And we see that there are changes in brain function as well. So uh, during gold standard psychological tests, if we're comparing a group of yoga practitioners to a group of people who have never done yoga. What we'll see is that there's certain areas of the brain that are less active during tasks. So, you know, your amygdala might be less active during a task, which means that your body's probably you know, functioning more efficiently. And then other areas. So we see an increase in your default mode network, which is directly related to memory performance. So there's that one. And so we see like, you know, these are networks. So these are regions of the brains that sort of fire together. And then in terms of brain output, we see better performances on tests, you know, decision-making and task switching and attention and cognitive control, executive functioning, which probably actually refers to a whole range of other things as well, but even like reward evaluation and decision-making. So you know, I don't know how these people have necessarily measured all of these things, but like there's been some pretty good reviews published that, you know, summarize these. And, you know, I can even provide you with some of the links to these if you want to give that to the listeners so they can actually go back to the roots and, and give it a good read. That's definitely been an area of interest in, in the yoga research and there's been some really positive findings for it so I'm actually super excited to see more like MRI studies published so that we understand all this stuff a little bit better. Just quickly could you explain what you mean by grey matter? Yes so that's actually a very good point so we use all these big fancy words in our brain, we have gray matter and we have white matter. You know, cells in our in our brain are called neurons and there is like a cell body and then there's an axon. The gray matter makes up most of our brain and it's actually where all the cell bodies, the axon terminals and the dendrites and all the synapses live. So it's kind of where like the bulk of the, the cells in our brain kind of reside. And so if the gray matter increases, it means that you know, we've got more cells, they're more robust, there's more connection between the cells, which means the certain areas of our brain are going to fire together, which means all of our processes, all of our movements and everything is just going to happen so much more efficiently. And there's this saying that gets circulated a lot and it's like neurons that fire together, wire together. So that's why when we're learning something new, it feels really like clunky and it's like almost stressful and you get a bit agitated when you're learning something new. Agitation and stress is like the perfect signs that you are in that learning window because that's your brain trying to wire this pathway together so that it will be easier for you next time. And then, you know, obviously you do it a hundred times and then you have that flow state and that's why flow is so enjoyable is because that path has been traveled so many times. Okay, that's really brilliant and really, really helpful. But thank you so much for answering all of my questions. Just as a kind of final point, is there somewhere that you can direct people to go and see your work? Or is there a Twitter that you might have in case people want to follow for more? Yeah, for sure. So I have a website, which is jacintabrinsleyclinicalyoga.com. And I am on Twitter, although I'm not super active on Twitter, but my handle is theyogidoc underscore. So you can find me there. Brilliant. Thank you so, so much. And I will put links to your work in the information. Thank you so much for your time. I know there's a time difference. So I know it's your evening. So I'm very grateful. Thank you.
absolute pleasure thank you for having me it's been a great chat thank you so much for listening to today's podcast episode with Jacinta I will pop links to some of the research that she mentioned as well as to her website if you would like to follow and learn more in the meantime please do follow at psych summaries on instagram for more topics in the realm of psychology and mental health and if you do enjoy listening then please consider donating to the patreon page which is in my bio thanks again for listening i will see you next time